Please turn with me in Scripture to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Last week we spoke of the Apostle John's description of what he saw, one like the Son of Man. And of course that was of greatest and paramount importance, that's what this whole revelation is about, is precisely the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servants. But we did skip over something that was also important, 
And that is John's description of himself in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John's self-description, the way he proclaims himself to us, is your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, my thought is, if he is indeed our brother and companion in these things, then perhaps we ought to know something about them. And so this description, the tribulation, kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ, is the subject of the sermon. First of all, it is necessary for us to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of his kingdom. We shall speak more of this. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to proclaim the kingdom. He came to do essentially two things. He came to preach the good news about his kingdom, and he came to secure his kingdom through the cross. It was all about the kingdom. And at this very moment, Christ is now working to build up his kingdom. That's what the church is doing to the glory of God. He is building his kingdom through the church. And when Christ returns, it will also be about his kingdom. It will be to finalize his kingdom, not through the cross this time, but through judgment, and then to realize it in the new heavens and the new earth. But of course, that day has not yet come. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are part of Christ's kingdom, but it is an invisible kingdom. It is one that we cannot see. It comes without observation. And indeed, we all have some part, if we're believers, we all have some part of advancing this invisible kingdom of grace. It is real enough. It's real enough to provoke very real opposition from Satan and his minions. And that's, by the way, why there is tribulation in this world then. This very real kingdom, we can't see it. But it's real enough to provoke opposition. And if this kingdom is real enough for the, the enemy to oppose it, then of course we need patience. And even though it may be real enough to him to provoke that opposition, it may not always be real enough to us. And that's why it requires patience, you see. Because his kingdom in its fullness and its completeness, the kingdom of glory is coming, but it is not yet. And so we must have patience. We must have patience that we would come. We must have patience as we endure the tribulation that surely will come our way if we are living in accordance with the word of God. So then these three things that are part and parcel of following Jesus Christ in the world, tribulation, kingdom, and patience of Christ. There will be tribulation. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be offended by it. We need to have patience. But we must remember that there is a kingdom coming, our inheritance forevermore. So then to change the order then of the the text just slightly, but perhaps to better explain it, we start with kingdom and then tribulation and thirdly, patience. So our first point, kingdom. 
Now, our tendency might be to think, possibly, maybe this is the way you think, at some point, maybe this is the way I thought, that the kingdom is something that is added to, or is superfluous, or is other than the gospel of grace, as if there's no necessary connection. It's a nice sort of illustration of the gospel, but it's not really um, of central importance. But we must remember that the gospel is the the gospel of the kingdom. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 9.35, it says that Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching what? The, The gospel of the kingdom. That's the good news, you see. It's the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. And there is no other gospel than that one. There is no other gospel that does not involve the gospel of the kingdom. And in Matthew 24, which is the mini-apocalypse, sort of companion in in some ways to Revelation, when he says succinctly some of these things that are going to happen, he says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we have to preach. That's what Christ preached. That's what the church preaches. But now we have to understand a little bit more about that kingdom. And here's where the complexity comes in. Here's where the potential for misunderstanding comes in. That there is a a threefold nature of Christ's kingdom. Yes, Christ only has one kingdom. That's true. But it's a threefold nature of that kingdom. And first you have the kingdom of power. Because Christ is the creator of this world. He is the sustainer of it. And he is the Lord. He is the director of all things. Whether or not the world acknowledges that power is another thing. But the reality is he does exercise power. What he wants done on this earth is done in the sense of the exercise of his power. That's what it says in the larger catechism towards the end of it in question 191. It says that he would be pleased when we're, this is with regard to the Lord's Prayer, which is a very important thing that we ought to know. What is the Lord's Prayer? What are the petitions? What do they mean? Explain it to me. It's all in the larger catechism. And it says, what do we mean when we say, thy kingdom come? Well, one of those things is that he'd be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world, because he has that kingdom of power in all the world right now, that he'd be pleased to exercise it as may best conduce to these ends of the building up of his spiritual kingdom, of the building up of his church. God is the Lord and he's sovereign over all things. The world may not and does not recognize it. And we might not recognize it sometimes, and that's a problem. We ought to recognize that he is sovereign over all things. But Christ actually does exercise all power and authority throughout the world. That's what it says in the Great Commission. All power and all authority had been given to Christ. That's the basis on which we can have a gospel to preach. But that's his kingdom of power. It's, it's exercised, but it's exercised in a sort of invisible way, and moreover, the people don't recognize it themselves, most of them, over whom it's being uh, worked. But then there's a kingdom of grace, which is the church. And in the Westminster Confession 25, it's, uh, paragraph 2, it says, The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, Catholic is not a bad word, Roman Catholic is something different, but Catholic just means universal, under the gospel, 
not confined to one nation as before under the law, consist of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, a house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. It is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of grace, you see. The kingdom of grace, that is the church. And this kingdom, people know that they're under the authority of Jesus Christ. And this kingdom, we, it's made visible only in the sense of the visible church. We gather. We're the, the visible manifestation of Christ's invisible kingdom of grace. And then thirdly, there's the kingdom of glory. Because you see, there's a little, there's, there's kind of, at the moment, we've got the, the kingdom of power out there in a general sense, and then we've got this kingdom of grace that he's building up of the church. But it seems a bit incomplete. And that's right, it is. But there is coming his kingdom of glory. And that, just to, to hit all three of our documents of the subordinate standards under the scriptures that sort of explain scripture as we believe it to do, and the shorter catechism, 102, what do we pray for in the second petition? Again, we're back to the Lord's prayer. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace that we just mentioned may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened, because that's what's coming. And that's what this revelation is so much about. You see, the kingdom of glory is, is when Christ comes on the clouds. It's all very public, visible, as a lightning is seen on one side and visible to the, the other uh, part, then so it is with Christ. Everyone will see him. There will be a real exercise, a coming together of those sorts of things so that his kingdom of power is known and recognized and enacted thoroughly and completely throughout the universe. Kingdom of glory. Well, let's think then about the way it works as we put these things together. As we mentioned, when Jesus Christ came into this world, it was essentially to do two things. To preach the good news about his kingdom and to secure his kingdom of grace through the cross. When he went to the cross, when he paid in his own blood for the sins of his people, his sheep, then that in principle secured forever his kingdom of grace. Of grace. That was the work. The work was finished. It is finished. But those people have to, in the course of time, actually hear that message. And they have to put their faith in that. It's all the work of God. It's all glory to God. But that has to happen in the course of time. And that's what's happening right now. It, all, it was all secured in principle on the cross. And now here's the outworking of it. And that work, believe it or not, I'm constantly amazed every time I come to this. I'm just amazed that this work is given to us, the church, to do. Christ isn't here. He's risen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But on this earth, the work of preaching that kingdom is given to the church. And bit by bit, one by one, people are coming into that kingdom of grace. They come and they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they're saved. It's the great work of the church to preach this message of the kingdom. And the kingdom of grace comes and it grows. And one day it comes to its fruition. One day the last one is saved. And then the end will come. Now when Jesus Christ returns, of course, it will also be about his kingdom. 
Because you say, well, yes, he's exercised his king, kingly authority over all the believers who are added to the kingdom of grace. But what about everyone else? What about those who go around hating Christ and killing his people? Well, that's why he's coming again, to do that part. He's coming then in judgment to judge the living and the dead. And there, thereafter, once he's judged all the rebels, the unrepentant sinners... Then he brings in the new heavens and the new earth, and this is the kingdom of glory. And that's what it's speaking of in very shorthand when it says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Because you know, not every eye saw him the first time. A few eyes, worldwide speaking, saw him. And, of course, not only was it just not everyone who saw him, not, certainly not everyone recognized his authority, but that won't be the case this time. And right then, as John was speaking, there were probably some alive, since he was still alive, probably some alive who still had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, those who pierced him. They hadn't been brought to justice. They were still at large. But he says, even those who pierced him, they'll see him. Everyone will see him when he comes. He will enact perfect justice, and he will bring in his kingdom of glory in the new heavens and the new earth. So, it's about the kingdom. We mentioned the Lord's Prayer several times, but think about it again as I read from Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is about the kingdom, you see. Twice mentioned in this brief prayer, it is all about the kingdom. Now we've said that Christ's kingdom is currently invisible. That's what it says in Luke 17, 20. And when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, that's the question. You're here. You say that you're the Messiah. That must mean you're about to bring in this kingdom. You've been talking about this kingdom. So where is it? He answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here or see there. He must not be talking about the end, because we know that that kingdom will come with observation. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of grace. Saying the kingdom is come. This kingdom of grace that you cannot see, it comes without observation. That's what he's building now. Now, that doesn't mean in the slightest that it's not real. Of course it's real. It's just not visible. But then here in Revelation, we focus on the coming realization. Because that's God's great message to us, that we ought to lift up our heads and our hearts and our minds and focus and think about that which is coming. And so in Revelation 11:15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Or in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Because if you're a little dissatisfied with the fact that the kingdom is invisible, so am I. And so are the martyrs in heaven. And so are the angels 
And so are all the members of Christ's kingdom of grace. We are all dissatisfied that and we look forward for the moment when that kingdom comes. And, And we are given a picture of that in Revelation. So it's about the kingdom. It's the gospel that we have. But secondly, for the moment, we have tribulation. That's our situation as believers in Jesus Christ. As if you noticed, by the way, as we were speaking of the confession and the larger catechism and the shorter catechism, there's one other kingdom mentioned. There are three aspects of the kingdom of Christ. There's one other. Do you remember? Satan's kingdom. Right? And when you have the invisible kingdom, the kingdom of grace as it's growing throughout the world over time since Christ's resurrection, and then you also have Satan. And as we know, has been given this authority over the world, over the people of the world. They give it to him, but it's also been handed to him through Adam. These things are going to come into conflict. And precisely because of that, there's going to be tribulation. And that's why it says in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Patmos. That's why he was there. I was on the island that was called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now you have to understand that this was, he was not there on a missions trip. That's not what it means. And this island of Patmos, I'm I'm not exactly sure what its status is today, if it's beautiful or, or not, but at the time it wasn't. It was a barren sort of volcanic island. And people, it was a prison island and enemies of the empire were sent there in exile. And it was a rough life. That's why he was there. It was for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's because he, 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 wouldn't, uh, he wasn't going to be domesticated by the powers and authorities around him. He wasn't going to soften the message that he had. He wasn't going to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was going to preach it in all of its fullness. And for that, for the word and for the testimony of Jesus Christ... He was exiled to this island of Patmos. Now, as you know, he actually got off quite easy. In the providence of God, he was given a very long life. But a lot of his brethren had already been martyred. In fact, it had probably been many years since some of his fellow apostles had been martyred. And he was only exiled, at least at the time. Well, the point is... And the very thing that in the providence of God put him in this situation to receive this vision, you know, this very setting by which we now have the revelation, was precisely this persecution, this tribulation. It was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ that he now receives this vision of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I might just say, this is something that was brought up in our brief theology class on, I think on Tuesday, was the relationship between obedience and revelation, you see. You, when you receive the word of God, you receive it in submission, you receive it in obedience. And when you do that, it sort of becomes an upward spiral of God then giving you further truth. Now, if you short-circuit that and you don't want to submit to it and you don't obey it, well, then the process is stopped and, and you're not going to learn more. God doesn't work that way, you see. But the more that you receive it in faith and the more that you're obedient to it, the more that you get. And it's it's interesting to see how that worked even in the case of John himself. 
as he was there precisely because he was obedient and submissive and, and appreciative in a sense of, of actually of, of not rejecting it but receiving it, appreciative of that which he already knew, of course he received much more. The same might be said with regard to Daniel, as he also received in the end a great revelation. But first he was obedient absolutely to the little bit that he did know, right? He knew about purity laws. He knew about you shouldn't eat like the world. Now, we, this is not the case with us. This is something pointing to Christ as part of the ceremonial law. But the point is it's something that would otherwise look to be rather small and why not compromise on it? He held tenaciously to that and in the receive, end he received much, much more that the Lord revealed himself in various other ways. Well, anyhow, this is how John himself ended up on the island that is called Patmos because... He had been arrested and sentenced to Patmos for speaking the word of God. And so he's your brother and companion in the tribulation because he's not alone, you see. He is not alone. He's not the only one that was at that time suffering for the word of God, nor is he the only one that would in the history of the church ever suffer for the word of God. He's your brother and companion, or he ought to be. In fact, that's a question for us. Is he indeed our brother and companion in these things. Well, it's not as if the Lord Jesus did not make this clear to those who signed up to be his disciples. He said in Mark 10:29, Jesus said, I, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lambs for my sake in the Gospels. Think about the context. They're saying, Lord, we've left everything. We have nothing. What do we have? And he's, the whole point of this, the, the general point of this is to say, don't worry, don't worry. You're going to get much more. But even still, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So even in the very context of assuring them, don't worry, even in this life you're going to have all those things because your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, those things are going to be, they're going to be your family. Don't worry if you've had to leave your natural family. You're going to have this. But even then he has to say, with persecutions. And likewise in John 16.33 he says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And so even in the very midst of assuring us of his goodness, of his good intentions to us, of his provision for us, he reminds us that in this world you will have tribulation. If indeed you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if indeed you are a brother and companion of the Apostle John. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. Because it is an if, isn't it? Because there is another option. You can avoid tribulation. You can avoid persecution if you want to. Just don't try to live a godly life. And the world's not going to bother with you. Just try to compromise. Because that, that's available to you as well, and, and you're not going to be persecuted. But if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Now, by the way, it is not completely without connection here, the idea of tribulation and of kingdom. Okay? Because 
it is to those who endure that tribulation that they are given the kingdom, and that is a persistent message of revelation. We'll see that in the future, but I'll just put that seed in your mind. It comes, I think, from Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom as my Father has bestowed upon one upon me. You continue with me in my trials, and I'm going to bestow upon you a kingdom. It's not meritorious. It's not tit for tat, quid pro quo. It is rather that as true believers are show their allegiance to Christ, they will be persecuted, yet in the end they will receive a kingdom they did not deserve. So there's a kingdom, there is tribulation, and thirdly, patience. John is your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience, Jesus Christ. You see, there is an element of not yet in what we have. In fact, it's a significant element. Yes, absolutely, the most important thing is done. We're no longer enemies with God. The wrath of God has been taken away by the cross. We put our faith in him, and we are at peace, and we have union with Christ. And all these things are real and true, but there is an element that is not yet there, and it requires patience. In Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. But all these things are in the future tense. They haven't happened yet. And that means it requires patience for us now as we're waiting for them. What will happen in the future is this kingdom of glory, but what is needed until then is patience. And again, this is not something that is new to Revelation. I don't know much that is completely new in Revelation. What the Lord Jesus said in Luke twenty-one seventeen: You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Just to remind us once again, just remind you, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not for anything that you, if you're hated because you're just a lousy person and, and wrong to people, well, that's a different matter. We're not talking about that. You're going to be hated if you name the name of Christ and you, you speak of his word in its fullness and you try to live in a consistent way. You'll be hated. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. And you say, wait a minute, I thought there was lots of persecutions. Lord, you're speaking to people, most of whom were actually going to lose their life in persecution. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that. Remember, our death is not real death. We fall asleep, don't we? Because we're not going to lose anything in that at all. Not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. Because that's what's important. By your patience, possess your souls. That's what's called for us in this world, patience. The kingdom is coming, but it's not yet. He's going to set everything right, but it's not yet. There is tribulation, and so we must have patience. Now, I know that this is very hard. This is a hard message for us, because perhaps of all generations, we are the ones who are least patient. We're thankful to God for the great advances in technology that allow us to travel quickly in various modes. We don't have to wait months and months to cross the Atlantic. We can get on a plane and do it in less than a day. We don't have to walk for hours to to go somewhere. We can get in our vehicles and get there in minutes. And we don't have to wait to receive news. We can get it instantly and through electronic means. And so many other things are, are just absolutely instant. 
For no matter what ounce we make instant in this world, there is one thing that is not, and that is the kingdom, the coming of Christ's kingdom of glory. It is not instantaneous. When it comes, it will be instantaneous, but meanwhile we have to wait for it. It requires patience, something that is not normally inculcated. Well, if we do that, we're actually following an attribute of God because Romans 15.5 says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded to one another, according to Christ Jesus. May the God of patience, and you must say that he is a patient God. You must believe that he is because you think about this holy God and those eyes of flaming fire and he looks at this world the same way we think that we see things that God doesn't and he doesn't notice, but that is not the case at all. He sees things that we don't notice about the whole world around us and about ourselves as well. And if we could see, if, if it's not bad enough for you already, if we could see what he sees, I'm sure we would be very impatient at all, completely. We would say, how does the Lord enable, allow this to continue another moment? Why does he not put it right? The answer is, he is the God of patience, you see. And it is to his glory to forbear for a time. Now, he is not slack. Don't mistake him for being slack. That means that he's never going to do these things. But it does mean that he's patient. He's a God of patience. And we must be patient along with him. And in fact, not only do we imitate God in our patience, we imitate saints who have been patient. That's what we have in Hebrews, for instance. It reminds us. That's the, you know, on more than one occasion, it, it uh, brings our attention to human saints. And in Hebrews 6.12, it says that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's how you inherit those promises. Faith and patience. Faith, the essence of that is you're seeing, you realize the reality of something that is not seen. That's faith. And patience, something that is not yet. And through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, we imitate God. We imitate the faithful saints in their patience. And that's what we must do until the coming of the Lord. And James 5, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And we're going to see it again and again in Revelation that this requires patience. Now the Lord wants to make it as real as possible to us. And that's the whole point of knowing these things. We don't want it to be just a kind of bare sort of sketch that we have no, that just hangs in the air and it's, it's so ephemeral it just kind of floats away. That's not what we want. We want it to be as real as, as possible. But we never get away from the reality of having to be patient until it comes. And that's why it says more than once in Revelation. Well, it begins even in, in towards the end of this chapter. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. There's something else coming. But then in, in Revelation 13, it says, Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Why? Because the previous verse says, He who leads into captivity will go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. 
There are things in the history of of redemption that yet must be outworked, and therefore you must be patient. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And in the next chapter of Revelation 14, 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It calls for patience. Well, then, we apply these things. The kingdom and tribulation and patience of Jesus Christ. First of all, we have to remind ourselves this only works for believers. A lot of good patience is going to do you if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no point in being patient for the judgment if you're not in Christ. And moreover, it is not a work of the flesh. And you could think that. You could think, all right, well, then if I have this patience, then I'm going to earn salvation. Well, that's not the case at all. It says, you remember when uh, Jesus was speaking to a man who asked some questions and he was asking about the greatest commandment. And in the end, he says to him in Mark 12, 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, he didn't mean in terms that the kingdom of God is coming quicker for you. He meant to say that this man was close to having faith in Christ. And he was receiving the word of God with a, a receptive sort of heart. Well, when we put our faith in Christ, when we believe that he came, he lived this perfect life, and he died this substitutionary atonement on the cross for us, and that he rose again the third day, then we are brought into that kingdom. And when we've done that, secondly, we ought to prepare for tribulation. We need to prepare for it. I think of... uh, the uh, school of, of theology called dispensationalism it came with the with Darby and uh, the Schofield Reference Bible, particularly in America. And sometimes I thought that dispensationalists spend so much time looking for the tribulation because you know they have a very um, a complex sort of system of way, about the way the world ends. They spend so much time looking for the tribulation they don't even think about tribulation as a normal situation for all of God's people. But that is the normal situation for all of God's people. Tribulation. The Lord had promised it more than once. In this world you will have tribulation. Prepare for it. Don't mistake revelation for you to think that tribulation is all in the future. The kingdom of glory, Christ's coming, is in the future. That requires patience. But you don't have to be too patient waiting for tribulation because it's here. And you'll see it. You'll see it from the world, and you'll even see it from those who call themselves God's people. And that, I think, is one of the things that is hard for us to take. But as we go on in Revelation, we're going to see that one of these churches was being persecuted by a synagogue. And he has to say, these people call themselves a synagogue of my people, but actually they're a synagogue of Satan. Well, we must remind ourselves that we're going to be in tribulation and we ought to prepare ourselves for it. And that's why in Acts 14.22, this is Paul strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's how the apostles strengthened the souls of the disciples. 
Not by saying everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine. Where's your life now? Are you satisfied with your life? I can make your life much more satisfied if you believe in Jesus Christ. No, what he's saying is that you're going to suffer. What he says is that we, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Again, it's not meritorious. It's just a reality. And furthermore, when Paul says in Acts 20, 22, And see, I go bound in the spirit of to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Right? So a little bit more specific, but it's the same idea as what is given to all of us. Tribulation awaits us. But none of these things move me. They don't move me. Nor do I count my life dear to me, so that I may finish my race with joy. The ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He knew that if he counted his life too dear in this world, he wouldn't be able to do that. And he wanted to finish his race with joy. He's not moved by the fact that there's going to be tribulation. Well, we could go on and on with such things, believe me. And I think we will before the end of this series in Revelation. We'll hit this subject more than once. But we ought to expect and be ready for and prepare for tribulation. And thirdly, we need to be steadfast in it. Because there's always the possibility of people who name the name of Christ crumbling under tribulation. That is all too possible. We know that from the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, 20, you remember that wonderful parable of the sower. It helps us to understand what happens. Why don't all people come to Christ when we preach the word to them? Well, there's this different seed, isn't there? The same seed, but it's falling in different places. And it says in verse 20, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. How do we know that? What's going to be the, the thing that will, will change the situation a little bit? It says, For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Because of the word. Again, not because of his own sin, but because of the word. And when persecution arises, he's going to stumble. But we need to be steadfast. We know that this tribulation, as I mentioned before, it can be avoided by compromise. That's precisely why, well, there's probably a couple of reasons why heresy comes into, this, into the church. One is out of apologetic motives. We forget that it's only through the supernatural working of the Spirit that hearts are opened and that people come to faith in Christ and we want, to, we want to have an easier way and we want to find a way that people are not going to be offended by doctrines and so we, we teach them something that they'll accept more readily. And the other reason is to avoid persecution. And that's what the people in Galatians were doing. Why is it that they were teaching a false gospel in Galatia? Why? Because in Galatians 6.12... Paul explains they want to avoid persecution. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And so they come up with a heresy that denies the efficacy of the gospel of free grace. Holding fast to free grace was going to get them persecuted. And so they come up with a heresy. So it can be avoided by compromise. Absolutely. But on the other hand, we need to remember that being steadfast in tribulation is very good evidence of your salvation. 
We spoke in 1 John of how it is that we know that we're a Christian. It's important for us to know that. Well, being steadfast in tribulation is a wonderful aspect of the assurance of faith. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is what? What is it? It's manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. It's evidence, you see. Evidence. When you are steadfast in tribulation and persecution because of the word of God, it is evidence of what God is doing in you. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't use your citizenship, so to speak, if you can. Paul certainly used his Roman citizenship, didn't he? To prevent a miscarriage of justice. He used actually his his identity as a Pharisee to prevent a miscarriage of justice among the Sanhedrin. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and it's because of that that I'm being being, uh, dealt with in this way. And that actually worked, didn't it? And likewise, with regard to his Roman citizenship, he was asserting his rights under the law in these cases, and that's fine and good and well. And we ought to do those things. I must admit, I find a little comfort in having a couple of Christian Institute lawyers in this congregation. So we use these things. But that does not stay, that does not mean that Paul or any of us are ultimately going to avoid persecution. Yes, in those two, in those cases, he certainly avoided immediately being killed or, in one case, tossed into jail. That's true. But he eventually was martyred. Okay? So use your citizenship if you can, but don't think that that ends the possibility of tribulation in one way or another. Now, remember, of course, that they don't win just whether or not we we win in court or something like that. That's not the issue. They win and we lose only when we compromise. Okay? Keep that in mind. They win, we lose, only when we compromise the word of God. Fourthly and finally, we need to rejoice in tribulation. I know sometimes uh, the basic idea is just just grit it out. Just keep going through tribulation. Bare your, your teeth and keep moving But the funny thing is the Lord says that we should actually have joy in it. Let's see, again, many places you could turn to, but one would be Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into the grace which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And so it is that we glory in tribulation because we know these things are going to happen. We glory when God enables us to stand even when there are trials and tribulations. We must know that tribulation is coming. We shouldn't crumble when tribulation comes. We ought to be steadfast in that tribulation. And even more so, we ought to rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured much trial and much tribulation, and even now his body, the body of Christ, the church in this world, endures much persecution.
Lord God, help us to remember that through these things, you are bringing us into the everlasting kingdom. We are thankful, Lord, that Christ was steadfast in these things. And that through him that we can receive the kingdom as well. We know, Lord, that we are not strong enough on our own to maintain steadfastness in these things. We know, Lord, that we lack the strength, but you, Lord, have all power and authority. And you, Lord, who gave Christ the Holy Spirit without measure, Lord, you can give us the means wherewith to stand. We are thankful, Lord, that we are coming into a kingdom. Help us, Lord, never to forget it. And help us, Lord, as we know that tribulation comes, help us, Lord, to have the joy that passes all understanding. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.